Now you tell me, is there anything that the Lord cannot do? Power over life and death. Let's go to him now in prayer as we remember those words and as we approach the scriptures. Lord, we thank you that you are the God that can make dry bones come to life. You are life. You, you, you have it and you dispense it at will. And we thank you, Lord, for the breath, for the pulse that you have given us here. We're here today. We know it, Lord, because you have intended this. You've intended our lives to give glory to you. We're sitting here at Friendship Community Church this morning for your glory. And so, God, would you get glory this morning as your word is read and as it's taught, Father? Would, you, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight? Father, would you, you guard us all from error and guide us in your truth that, that Jesus may be lifted high? We pray in his matchless name. Amen. Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 8. Be in Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 40. That's where we left off last time we were together. Luke 8, 40, and we'll be reading until the end of the chapter. How about that? Wrapping up chapter 8. If you're using our church Bible, you can find that passage beginning on page 813. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 40. Today we'll be seeing blood dried and death denied. Blood dried and death denied. Would you read with me? This again is God's word, Luke 8, beginning in 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was the ruler of the synagogue, And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, falling down before him, And declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still sleeping, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. When he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, 
arise. And her spirit returned. And she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Now, it's always a good deal when you can get two for the price of one, especially when God the Son is covering the expense. And that's kind of what we get in our text this morning. We get two miraculous healings wrapped up and intertwined together into one glorious event. On the one hand, we see these two situations as completely different. You've got one woman who is a social outcast, and we'll build that out a bit more as we go along, but suffice it to say, she's been ceremonially unclean for 12 years, unable to be touched, unable to associate with friends and family. She's completely destitute. She's spent all that she's had on curing this debilitating physical ailment. So we've got this one woman over here who is desperately poor, who is lonely, who is cast aside by society. And then on the other hand, we've got the daughter of Jairus. That's right, the Jairus. You know, the ruler of the synagogue, Jairus. And this is a man of significant standing in the community. He's a chief official, most probably a Pharisee. And he oversees all aspects of the synagogue's worship and operations. This is a man of wealth. This is a man of power. This is a man of significant influence. And yet, we see Jairus' daughter not here. She's in critical condition. She's fighting for her life. Instead, Jairus himself is there. And note his posture. Look at verse 41. Where, where is he? Luke eight forty-one. Well, Jairus is at the feet of Jesus. This is a pretty big deal because the fact that someone in this social standing would fall down at Jesus' feet would have been striking to all those there. You see, at this time, in this day, you'd only fall down at someone's feet of uh, someone who was of much greater status than yourself, say like a king. So for this prominent man to humble himself in this way before Jesus is a clear acknowledgement of Jesus' superior power, Jesus' superior status. This guy's desperate, isn't he? Wouldn't you be? And he flings himself down at Jesus' feet. So don't miss these dual plot lines. We've got a poor, pitiable woman over here, and, and on the other hand, we've got a man of standing, a man of power and prestige. But the common denominator here in this passage is their desperation. They both recognize their dire need as they come to Jesus for help. And on one level, we could probably just shut our Bibles and go home with that, because that's sort of the point. But what follower of Jesus here wouldn't want to glory in the details of this amazing deliverance by our King? So we're going to dig a little deeper because there are also, I think, some uncanny similarities between these two crises. Of course, there's the desperation we've been talking about. These individuals are both desperate for healing. But Luke also uses overlapping terms to describe these two ailing individuals. First, he uses the term daughter. Daughter. 
It's used by Jesus to describe this bleeding woman in verse 48. And then again in the very next verse, verse 49, to describe the little girl. Now we're going we're gonna to lean into that connection a little bit deeper later. But remember that. It's an important word. Daughter. And then there's also the number 12. Jairus' daughter is about 12 years of age, we read from the text. And, and this woman had endured this issue of blood for how long? Yeah. Probably just a coincidence, though. So we've got two very different situations, but three Ds are the same. The desperation is the same. The duration is the same, 12 years. And the daughter status is the same. Let's pick up in verse 42. Jesus, hearing about the need that Jairus presents to him, graciously agrees to go with him. And and we read in verse 42, the crowd that accompanies him is nothing short of suffocating. Look at the very end of verse 42. Luke tells us that the people are pressing around him. Now, that's a pretty cleaned up English word, pressing around him. That Greek word can also be translated to choke, as in to choke out. Actually, Jesus has already used that same root word earlier in the same chapter, in Luke chapter 8, verse 14, if you're curious, as he's describing how the weeds in that thorny soil, remember that passage? The weeds will grow up and choke out the grain. Same word. There's a lot of people pressing on Jesus, and there's not a lot of space here. Again, remember that. Make Make a mental note, especially as we get to Peter's comment here in a bit. And in the midst of this crowd, in the midst of this choking, suffocating crowd, we see an unlikely character emerge. Look at verse 43. We find this woman with an issue of blood. This poor woman has been living in a perpetual state of uncleanness. Twelve years, bless you, twelve years She'd been bleeding for all this time. She's been bleeding for as much time as this little girl has been alive. Now, we're not told the exact cause of her bleeding. Perhaps she was suffering from some kind of uterine hemorrhage. But, but whatever it was, whatever the specific cause of her bleeding, we know that she, she couldn't stop. And this is a big problem. I'll just read to you from the law. This is Leviticus 15, 25 to 27. God's Word says, If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed, listen, every bed on which she lies all the days of her discharge shall be to her as a bed of impurity, and everything on which she sits shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes, and uh, sorry, I, I must have taken something out of context there. Anyway, everyone who touches these things shall be unclean. I think I skipped a a verse there. Copy and paste was a little bit too complicated for me, apparently. Um, But do you get the picture here? Leviticus 15. This woman's unclean. She's bleeding. And it's not just that she's like kind of inconvenienced. She is socially ostracized. She can't touch anything 
that anybody else is around, nor can they touch it or they become unclean. You getting a picture of the kind of isolation that this woman would have been living with for over a decade? This is a devastating condition. It, it rendered her certainly a complete outcast, unable to be touched or to be near her friends, her family, anything. So it makes you wonder, was she married? Did she have a family? Was she divorced at this point? We don't know. The bottom line was she couldn't touch, nor could she be touched, which means then she had no business being in a crowd like this, did she? (laughs) Where everyone's bumping into one another, right? I mean, she wasn't supposed to be there. So she just didn't have a a physical problem. She had a devastating social and spiritual and economic problem. It's no surprise then that this woman spent all she had on trying to find a cure. This thing was utterly life-changing for her. But no matter what doctor, no matter the experience or the medicine or the method, the results were all the same. No cure. Before we move on here in the passage, I think it'd be helpful just to stop, to pause for a moment uh, for some real-life application. Uh, What do we get out of this? What do we make out of this woman and, and how this might apply to our lives in 2023? Well, here's one. There are just some things, friends, that the professionals can't fix, right? There are some things... Even in our modern day of technology and medicine and infrastructure, there are some things that even the professionals can't fix. And although we can't and should be thankful for the common grace achievements that we have, we have uh, gained in 2023 by way of medical technology and education and so many other things, we can't fall into the trap of believing that our own human innovations can save us. Here's the sober truth. In spite of all our progress, in spite of all our innovations, we are completely powerless to stop our suffering. Try as we may. There's no economic policy. There's no political system. There's no medical or technological breakthrough. There's no amount of educational reform that can eliminate the pain and brokenness caused by our sinful nature. All you got to do is take just a brief glance backward at history, and you will see that this is a perennial problem for us. Those of us with skin on here, we, we, we are tempted over and over and over again to trust in our own devices, our own power, to try to eliminate our problems, our suffering, our, our sin. The answer is education. That was the enlightenment, right? The answer is, entire nations buy this lie, the answer is if we would just install the right kind of political economic system, So we get the tragedy of communism that promises a social utopia. Yeah, right. More like a dumpster fire, right? And yet, we can make the same basic mistake, I think, by trying to swap out the system with a better model. So the answer is certainly not socialism. Maybe it's democracy. Surely capitalism is our savior. Please don't understand me. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that politics or economics or technology or health care aren't good things. Of course they are. 
They're important and even necessary. But what I am trying to say is this. We are just as broken as we've ever been, aren't we? The only answer, the only power that's able to fix what is fundamentally fractured in us on a soul level is a person, and his name is Jesus. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, the psalmist tells us, not us. The people of God, we we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And here in our text, we see both the powerful and the pitiful stripped down to nothing. And they both understand that Jesus is their only hope. Right? All right, back to our passage. Verse, Verse 44. We get the entire healing, I love this, the entire healing of this woman with the issue of blood wrapped up and packaged into one verse. Isn't this wild? Verse 44, all she does is touch the very corner, the very tassel of his garment, just the fringes, and even that is enough to heal her. Healed completely. And you got to see the radical contrast between the power of the physicians that she spent every dime on and the power of the great physician. You see, her actual cure came at no cost whatsoever. It almost seems too simple, doesn't it? She just touches the very fringes of his garment and bam, immediately there's an exchange of divine power and this woman, this broken, isolated woman is restored and healed. I think for just a moment, just a glimmer of a moment, you can almost taste her joy. Finally, she's healed. But then... Just as quickly, her joy melts away to panic because Jesus knows that divine power has gone out from him, doesn't he? And he insists on getting to the bottom of this. Who touched me? Jesus says. And then we get Peter, right? Impetuous Peter, ever the pragmatist Peter who said, Now, come on, Jesus, look at this crowd. The question's not who's touching you, it's who's not touching you. There's people everywhere. Remember, they're choking, they're pressing in on one another. But Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He always knows exactly what he's doing, and he doubles down. Now remember, this woman was not allowed to touch anyone. Probably shouldn't even have been here. So no wonder she didn't come forward at first, right? Now look at verse 47 with me, Luke 8, 47. She denies it. Everyone denies it at first, but she knows that he knows. Sometimes when Jesus asks a question, he doesn't ask it for his own information. He asks it for our benefit. She knows she's found, and so trembling like a leaf, she comes forward and confesses in front of everybody why She touched him, and what immediately happened when she did. I think here's another point of application that we should make before we we, uh, speed on our way through the text, and it's this. Being exposed by God may be a frightening thing, but it can actually be a good thing. You know that? 
Sometimes God loves us enough to expose us when we try to hide, when we try to cover something up. But when God exposes a thing, it's a matter of His justice and it's a matter of His kindness. And we see her fear, her panic, her hesitancy gives way when Jesus responds to her to grace and kindness, doesn't it? Being exposed by God can seem like, especially if it's your sin, can seem like it's the worst thing ever. But it is very like God to bring the darkness to light because He has healing in mind. Because He has restoration in mind. It's a good thing when God exposes us. Remember that verse in the New Testament? It's His kindness that leads us to repentance, however hard that repentance may be. All right. Back to... Back to the text, verse 48. This healed woman had just come clean, pun intended. So what's Jesus' response? Let's look at His word to her here in verse 48. What's He say? He calls her daughter. It's not merely, friends, that this woman received a miraculous healing that day. She also gained a new identity. She entered into a personal, intimate relationship with her Savior. Do you see this? She's no longer this nameless social outcast. She's part of Jesus' own family. She belongs to Him. He called her daughter. And I think it's hardly possible to overstate this point. You know, this is the only time in all of the Gospels that Jesus directly calls someone daughter. It's it. It's the only time. Here's how one biblical commentator, Philip Ryken, puts it. I love this. He writes, For twelve agonizing years, she had been alienated from human society. There must have been many times in her long suffering when she felt completely rejected, even by God. All she wanted was someone to hold her and take care of her. Now she was wrapped up in the embrace of her Savior. Jesus had not called her out to humiliate her after all, but to save her and to heal her and to love her as God's own dear child. Isn't that good? I wonder then, if that woman were here today, if there would be tears in her eyes and a lump in her throat when she stands to sing, as we soon will at the end of the service, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And I wonder how He could love me, a sinner, condemned, unclean. But oh, how marvelous, how wonderful, my song shall ever be, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. I wonder if you dear Christian, can sing out that same refrain and mean it. Is that true of you? Will you marvel, will you wonder as you sing about your Savior's love washing away your sin, your your uncleanness before a holy and perfect God? That's why we come. 
That's why we gather week in and week out. He's worthy of this. Well, turns out there's not just one beloved daughter in this passage. There's actually two. Let's turn our attention back to the other one. While we're still marveling, we are suddenly snapped back into reality with the urgency of Jairus and his daughter's plight. So we'll pick it back up in verse 49. Luke writes, Dr. Luke, while he was still speaking, while Jesus was still pronouncing words of grace and kindness over this healed woman, someone from the ruler's house came with terrifying news came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. I think it's hard to imagine, hard to fathom what's going through Jairus' head and heart right now. This is his worst possible fear. This is the most devastating loss he can possibly imagine. And now it's become his reality. His only daughter is gone. Now keep in mind, They've just watched Jesus demonstrate this otherworldly power, the kind of power that just defies explanation. But there's no one here in this passage even considering that Jesus could do something about this tragedy. After all, healing someone who's sick? Well, that's pretty good. That's one thing. But death? Man, that's an entirely different matter. When you've crossed that threshold, you have crossed the point of no return. And and everyone knows it. As far as everyone's concerned here, that's it. This tragedy has reached its heart-wrenching conclusion. Nothing more can be done. So we read, don't bother the teacher anymore. All hope is gone. She's dead. And they're right, of course. They're right, except for one pesky detail, that the giver of life is standing in their midst. Look at his response, Jesus' response in verse 50. But Jesus, on hearing this, on hearing about her death, answered him, do not fear. He says that a lot, doesn't he? Don't fear, Jairus. Only believe. She will be well. See, Jesus knows exactly what he's going to do. After all, remember that he holds the keys of death and Hades. Revelation 1.18. The keys of life and death belong to your Savior. You know that? Pick it up in verse 51. When he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter there with him except Peter and John and and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she's not dead, but sleeping. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. It's interesting to me that Jesus intentionally limits the witnesses of this mind-blowing miracle he's about to perform to a very small circle. This is the first time in the gospel, if you're curious, Luke's gospel, that is, that we see Peter and James and John singled out as an inner circle among Jesus' disciples. We'll see that come to play more as the gospel continues. And Jesus says something jarring 
at least to our natural ears, in verse 52. What's he tell the parents? What's he tell everybody? Tells them, don't cry. Do not weep. Think about how tone deaf, even callous, those words must have sounded in that moment. I mean, how callous, how uncaring, how tone deaf. That is, if Jesus doesn't have the power to pull off what he's already purposed to do in his heart, yet those outside of Christ find this to be utter nonsense. And we see this by their actions, don't we? What do they do? Verse 53. Well, they mock him. They laugh. It doesn't deter Jesus one bit. Verse 54. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. Two words. That's all it took. And what happened? Well, (laughs) verse 55. Her spirit returned. And she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. He, He holds the keys of death and Hades. Hallelujah. There is nothing that this Christ, this Messiah, this anointed one Jesus cannot do. There's no power, not even death itself, that can stay his hand. Here we see Jesus reversing the irreversible. How did he do it? Like, what was his method? How did he do it? He's doing this quite a bit now with his miracles. He he spoke. That's how he did it. Two words. Just as he'd done a chapter or so ago to the widow's son at Nain. In verse 55, we see this little girl, her spirit returned. Well, what did that mean? That means her spirit had already departed, had it not? She was really dead. Her spirit returned. Upon hearing the voice that spoke the cosmos into into existence, her spirit is quick to oblige and returns to her body. And this woman, or this young, young girl, proceeds to do two things that dead people typically do not do. She gets up at once, and then at Jesus' command, she has something to eat. Proving, by the way, that They're not just seeing things. This isn't some ghost or apparition. She's real, and she's really alive. Amazing. Utterly amazing, which is precisely the word that Dr. Luke uses to describe her parents' reaction in verse 56. They were amazed. It's worth noting the weight of that word. We don't see that that particular Greek word used often. Last time Luke's used it is back in chapter 2. That word amazed can also be rendered into English utterly astounded, overwhelmed, or confounded. Once again, we see Jesus is mighty to save. There is no power of hell, not even death, not even the ultimate showstopper can stop this God-man. And yet he continues to confound, does he not? He continues to operate in a level just so different, so otherly, so holy. That's what that word means. So set apart. 
than the rest of us would operate. He turns and issues them a charge. What's his command to them? Don't tell anybody about this. I mean, word's probably going to get out when she walks out of the room, right? (laughs) Now, We've dealt a little with this already in Luke's gospel. We see this on repeat, don't we? Jesus doing bonkers stuff. But he's not a a magician. And he often says, yeah, don't tell. Keep that between us. Or later. Although there is no shortage of theories as to why Jesus does this so often. By the way, I'm, I'm not persuaded by most of those theories. And if you've got theories, I'd love, to, I'd love to hear them. But it's interesting to know that Jesus doesn't give any, any explanation as to why not. That why they should keep this one to themselves for now. And we're not going to wade too deeply into those waters today for the sake of time. The text just doesn't give us an explanation. I'm not going to try to coax one out other than the the obvious point. It was not yet time. I mean, clearly God wanted you to know this. God wanted everybody to know this. He inscripturated it. The Holy Spirit, God very God, led Dr. Luke to write this in the... God wanted everybody to know, but it wasn't yet time. You see, Jesus is content to manage his own PR, thank you very much. And the point is, he doesn't only control what happens, he controls how it happens and when it takes place. All right. Well, there there it is, this glorious account of, of two lives, drastically different yet eerily similar, being healed and restored and saved by Jesus. Let's close with some simple application. Two things. We've we've hit a couple small points, but as we zoom out from this text, how, how do we make sense of this and how do we apply it to our lives today? Here's one. One thing that we should do or not do is that we shouldn't jump to spiritual conclusions on what God is or isn't doing based upon our circumstances alone. Say that again. We should not jump to spiritual conclusions about what God's will is or what He's doing based upon circumstances alone. And we've got a tendency to do this, don't we? We tend to use our circumstances that play out in our lives as signposts of God's will. And I'm not saying that we should have our head in the sand. But circumstances don't tell the entire story, do they? I find that we sometimes will use very Christian-sounding language to do this sort of thing. A lot of times, we like to use the open-door language, don't we? If something's easy, well, it must be God's will, because He's opening the door after all, right? Or just the opposite. We conclude that something can't possibly be God's will... Because it's too blasted hard. There seems to be some obstacles there that we're going to have to push through. Friends, just because it's hard doesn't mean it's not from God. And just because it's easy doesn't mean it is, right? 
I mean, don't get me wrong. Again, it's not that we shouldn't look, look up and take stock of our circumstances. One of the gifts God gives His people is the gift of discernment. I'm not saying that it's wrong to use circumstances at all to make decisions. What I'm saying is that your Bible would be pretty thin if God's people always threw in the towel when there appeared to be a closed door. Am I right? Don't use circumstances as the only indicator of what God is telling you to do or telling you not to do. Be careful of that. Next thing, last thing. Jesus delays, even Jesus delays, lead us to joy. (laughs) Oh, how we struggle with God's timing. I, I sure do. Think about Jairus and his daughter. <laughs> Part of me thinks about what, what he might have been feeling as Jesus had been distracted with that woman with the issue of bleeding. His daughter's dying. Hurry up, Jesus. And then she did because he was delayed. Think about that woman. Twelve long years. No family connection. No warm embrace from a loved one. Twelve years. Sometimes our timing is not God's timing. We all feel that, don't we? And yet, did it not turn out well for them in Christ in the end? How about you? Are you waiting on something? Are you even waiting on something righteous? Does it seem at times that God is dragging His divine feet in providing an answer? Maybe an answer to your prayer or your longings of your heart. Well, the Bible, I think, reminds us here and lots of other places that even God's slowness to act is really an extension of His grace and His goodness. So if you're suffering, and some of you here are, if you're waiting, and some of you here are, if you, in the midst of your tears and your tension, are wrestling with God's timing, and some of us here are, Be reminded, based upon the authority of God's holy word to you, Christian, that your waiting is not merely a function of God's inattentiveness, like He doesn't notice. It's not a function of His ambivalence, as if He doesn't care. No, God sees your waiting. God understands your struggle. And His promise to those in Christ is that even in this thing, He is working this out for His own glory and for your good. Take heart, waiting Christian. Your God sees you. Your God knows your situation. And even in His hard providences, His grace will ultimately prevail. One of my favorites, Dale Ralph Davis, says it so winsomely, His Delays. Jesus' delays lead to joy.
Let's end there. We're going to sing and pray on this. Would you, would you pray with me now? God, we thank you for your power revealed afresh to us today. If we confess truly, Lord, sometimes we're just, we're just a bit numb as we read your word and we just see story after story on page after page of you doing whatever you want. No thing too hard for you. No power too strong for you. And God, I pray that you would remind us in, in our inner heart this morning that you're still on the throne. That you still have every power at your disposal to do what you will. That your timing, though hard for us, Father, is right and perfect. That you're kind even in our waiting. That you're kind even when you expose our sin. God, you are an awesome God. May we here at Friendship Community Church declare afresh this morning and for the rest of our days, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Lord, make that our song in Jesus' name.